Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Oh, mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello there. Thanks for tuning in to Democracy Sausage from the Crawford School of Public Policy Studio at the Australian National University. I'm Mark Kenny from ANU's Australian Studies Institute. Don't we live in a strange, contradictory country, one of tolerant, innovative people and yet lumbered with narrow, mediocre governments? One of broadly progressive Republican sensibilities, yet timid politicians and a crippling fear of cutting the apron strings? one of social justice and egalitarianism at the same time as we allow the jobless, carers and many first Australians to languish below the poverty line, and one possessed of a new world confidence, yet often inclined to nostalgia and contempt to accept dithering for fear of higher electricity prices. It's hard to imagine a more long-run, more openly discussed threat to our way of life than global warming. We've known about it for decades. Yet even as its terrible costs arrive, we're paralysed by indecision. In the place of policy, we accept sophistry. Clever words cynically deployed. Instead of remedial action, we get virtuous inaction, as governments flip the balance of risk, suggesting that the responsible thing to do is to sit back, cling to the status quo, hope for the best. 73 nations, including Boris Johnson's Britain, Angela Merkel's Germany, both conservative governments, by the way, and every Australian state and territory have endorsed a target of net zero emissions by 2050. Yet in Australia, in 2020, our government says this goal is reckless. Well, I call that feckless. I was talking to the great Barry Jones just before recording this uh, podcast, and he made this point. He said, if 30 years ago a journalist had asked a minister, what will be the costs of transforming Australia into a digital economy? Could anyone have given a credible answer? But it has happened, he says. But let's stop hearing from me and start hearing from some real talent. Political scientist Dr. Maria Taflaga is a staple of Democracy Sausage, of course, and uh, joins me each week. Welcome, Maria. Hello, everyone. Megan Fitzharris is a senior fellow in health policy and leadership at ANU and is a former health minister here in the ACT. Welcome back, Megan. Good morning, everyone. And John Hewson AM is a professor at the Crawford School of Public Policy and, of course, was at one point leader of Her Majesty's Loyal Opposition. Welcome, John. Good morning. Do you have to remind me? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's fairly prescient, uh, really, uh, to be talking about it because, uh, you know, uh, in some ways you were known for having a lot of policy in the marketplace. We now have a government that perhaps doesn't have all that much at all. That's right. 
be interesting to see where we go. Now, look, let's let's talk about, I guess, the big development since the last pod, which is Labor's declaration of this 2050 target net zero emissions. Uh, it raises the question, and we saw this playing out on Insiders, it raises the question about political risk, leaving aside, you know, sort of climate risk and all the all the other implications of of climate change. But what what's your view, John? Has has Labor done the right thing by tying itself to this twenty fifty target? Oh absolutely. I mean I think it's well established that you need at least a net zero emissions twenty fifty target to avoid a serious global warming on on an international scale. I think the numbers are you've got to cut emissions by about 50% by 2030 to get to net zero emissions by 2050. That's across the globe. And that, Nobody's let, anywhere near that. Let's put that in context so, because Labor was hammered at the mm. last election for having a 45% emissions mm. cut by 2030 in its, in its manifesto. You know, that was the, the, the narrative post-election given that Labor lost was that it aimed too high and we, we even heard some noises from – uh, from the the new Labor leadership, Anthony Albanese and others, that um, perhaps it was too ambitious. We now have this 2050 target named, but as you say, this does any sort of ambitious target does imply a number of what you might call subsidiary targets that you have to meet on the way there. And you're saying it's about it's in that order, about 50 percent. If you're going to yes, if you're going to leave the 2030 target as the Paris commitment. And you're going to have to very, have a very large target between 30 and 50 <laughs> to get to net zero emissions by 2050. So, I mean, it's a silly game that's being played to score short-term political points. It's got nothing to do with the reality of the transition we have to make to a low-carbon Australia by the middle part of this century. And I don't think you should be criticised for saying that's a reasonable objective. It's three decades away. Uh, we've got plenty of time to make that adjustment if we start across the board in all sectors and we all work together on it. But if we're going to have another decade of climate wars, which it looks like we are, uh, then um, you know we, we we are never going to get anywhere near what we should be doing. And I, and you mentioned my policy back in the early nineties. I mean, we had a, a policy of a twenty percent cut in emissions by the year two thousand off a nineteen ninety base. If we'd done that every decade since, we would have had a much lower um, uh, effective. Um, Carbon price, so electricity and gas prices would have been much lower, and we'd be at less than half the Paris commitment today. So I mean, it's just it's a nonsense to say that we should wait another decade before we start because we won't be able to catch up. And Megan, the uh, the point John makes there about you know the the effort that we could have achieved had we gone about that in the in the early mid nineties. It's also true to say that uh, we would have had a whole lot more purchase in the councils of the world and arguing for much tougher targets. We don't have much at the moment, do we? No, there's not a lot of uh, capital uh, there to expend uh, and a long way to go, it certainly seems. I would. What really struck me about last week and Labor's uh, shift was I think it reflected the shift in the community over the over the season. Mm -hmm. I think you, you know, when, when you have a discussion, I think, with some colleagues here at the ANU of some of the polling and survey work that they've done, that really demonstrates that shift in the Australian population, not just for those who were are directly affected, but by those who are indirectly affected by the season, I think it brought home what this means on a day-to-day -day basis, and we're all staring ahead at the next season uh, to see what uh, what what governments across the country will do. Governments at the state and territory level have taken action and I think have a real opportunity. Is that, is that because state governments, territory governments are just closer to the people and they, you know, their, their, their services, their infrastructure, all of their exposure in a sense to to this change in climate and the risks feels that much more real and so there's been a much greater sensitivity 
about it. What, what, what do you think, Maria? Is that the difference between the sort of politics at the state level? Because these are liberal state governments uh, who are also committed to this uh, zero 2050 target. I think it actually says a couple of things, right? One, I guess it shows the intractable political problem that climate change faces the federal coalition government, right? It is it is a political problem. It's not like there aren't a, a myriad of solutions and uh, ways to sort of act on climate change without saying you're acting on climate change that haven't been sort of tried. Um, but but then, it doesn't have – I'm sorry to interrupt, but it doesn't have to be, does it? I mean, no, it's, not, it's no. not a political um, problem for Boris Johnson no, in the way that it's a problem no. for Scott Morrison. But I guess that's that's sort of what I mean. Like, um, you know, other state governments have been able to sort of move on this because they don't necessarily have the same kinds of problems. But you are right. There is a local dimension to it. So, for example, I think currently the Victorian state government is trying to develop a framework to, to deal with the fact that so many local governments in Victoria are now trying to move on climate change at the local level. And this is sort of producing policy policy chaos, which kind of goes to the actual problem here, which is it's great that state governments are moving forward on climate change and that they're sort of taking up the initiative. But what is actually really bad is that we do not have a national policy and a national framework. You don't necessarily want seven different governments going in seven different directions. You you want the central government to set a framework because, you know, in this day and age when governments do not necessarily have the capacity to control the economy and to uh, control uh, systems of government like they could in the 1950s, that is pretty much their function to set the rules of the game, to set the incentive structure. And whilst it's great that state governments might be doing um, stuff off their own backs, some of it will inver- invariably be counterproductive or problematic or create problems down the line. I think it goes to seeing where the, the scale of the problem exists because it d- there's very few that exist at the local level between waste, for example, um, and there has been a little bit of leadership from the from the federal government on waste, and um, there's a lot of work to do there, but the councils are definitely at the front line on waste, all the way up to energy policy at the Commonwealth uh, and the federal level. And the lens in which we think of climate change at the federal level tends to be through energy and different sources of energy. But I think, um, and, and you're right, Maria, and I agree, and part of the reason states and territories have taken action is in the absence of that is in the absence of that leadership. And we see that um, in the private sector as well, don't we? I oh. mean, there's a lot of private sector activity going mm. on, uh, managing risk. People don't have the luxury of debating whether it is politically advantageous or not in the short term. They're looking at much, much sort of colder and more concrete mm-hmm. considerations like whether they are they are exposed to a um, you know future costs for example it's rather a strange position that the government the LNP government's got itself into because some of its traditional supporters uh, constituents like the business council of australia now say net zero <laughs> emissions uh, big big miners like BHP and Rio are getting out of thermal coal uh, calling for a price on carbon uh, the, all the things that you would expect the liberal party to be leading on they're lagging on and lagging not only domestically but internationally. And uh, I think it's a hard position to understand. And I know Marie just mentioned the, the um, political issue. I mean, they've made it a political problem. It's not a left-right issue, not progressive versus conservatives. It's got nothing to do with politics. They've made it a political issue. And now we're stuck with this problem that the National Party loses sight of the national interest. It's national's interest versus national interest. And we end up with a, with a ridiculous debate which uh, is just costing Australia enormously in a medium-term sense. You've got a, obviously a lot of um, personal history in actually being the leader of the opposition and, and having a, 
an understanding, I suppose, that mm. none of us can bring to bear about the dynamics between the junior and the senior coalition partner. Have yeah. the nationals changed in your view? I mean, they used to be the party of farmers. Uh, are they still the part, are they still no, that they've, party? No, they've gone from farmers to miners to anything they can latch onto. But the bottom line is I think the national party's lost touch with its constituency. I mean, there are always issues that test the coalition. When I first became leader, for example, there was the wool crisis where wool growers had been borrowing very large amounts of money to buy their own wool at a price that was way above the world price. And rather than putting that wool on the market, they were sticking it in storage bins and they expected the government to pick up all that debt. Now, that was potentially a, an issue that would not only divide the national versus liberals, but it would divide the Liberal Party internally. And the way I dealt with that was to just have everyone in the room and say, we'll call you out. Everyone's going to have to work together to a sensible market-based solution. And um, so they, they towed the line. But if you let them run, as we saw under Turnbull and you're now seeing under, under – um, Morrison, they've got a life of their own. They see they have a constituency. They think they're appealing to that constituency. I don't think they are, but they, they think they are. And uh, so, you, you know, as long as you let them run and you don't call them out and you don't hold them to account as part of a team, part of a government team, you pay a price. And because it's been able to run for as long as it has, it's done a lot of damage to the credibility of an LNP government. And... Um, you know, I think uh, Labor's been able to exploit that quite effectively. <laughs> What's your view, Megan? I mean, uh, having been a political representative, I mean, you you know, you know about representing constituents, about having multiple points of view, uh, having to be you know faithful to to the people who put you there and so forth, and the you've got the other uh, exigencies of being in a party and so forth. But how are you reading this kind of uh, situation that Scott Morrison finds himself in now? You know, post. The challenge on on um, Michael McCormack's leadership, uh, he seems to have toughened his rhetoric, his pro-coal rhetoric, which you know was widely predicted. Is is, is the government has the government got less room to manoeuvre now than perhaps it had, say, at the uh, you know right at the end of the bushfire crisis, when there seemed to be a few noises coming out from from they senior did. ministers that there might have been a pivot uh, in the wings. It looks like the pivot was halted by the by the political mess that the nationals really put them into, really, uh, you know, of their own making. I think uh, certainly I, I was optimistic that there would be a change and that the community reaction to the bushfire, the global reaction to the bushfires, and and some of the imagery would would have a a real change, but you did start to see some language changes. Um, oh, we've always accepted the climate change is real. We've always accepted uh, I'd that, that. In my yeah, core, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, despite you know uh, saying, well, what about everything else you said? Well, this is the moment we've been hoping for that this um, that this prime minister will take leadership on this issue. Uh, and given everyone's understanding of the difficulties um, that that the government had been through and governments of both Labor and Liberal uh, make up, that people should have supported him through that potentially. Um, if if that window had opened and he'd managed to find his way through it, but then he didn't take that opportunity, um, he could have. And, uh, you know, I think leadership is standing up and saying, I think, as John said, getting people in the room and saying this is significant. I, I think Anthony Albanese did that last week uh, when he spoke about providing national leadership. He spoke about the opportunities that can come. This is very much framed negatively. Um, he's got a long road ahead to frame it positively, but he's speaking about the opportunities and has been all the way through his leadership um, about jobs, 
uh, about the opportunities for jobs, particularly in regional Australia. I think that that narrative over the next two and a half years uh, has significant legs, and I think there will be evidence that you can generate jobs, do you think, uh, different do you types think he's of jobs. Exposed though, like without you know, in this period between naming the target and not being able to sure provide sure. you know yeah. modelling or or predictions about what the costs are going to be. That's going to allow the, the Scott Morrison, we saw him do it very effectively during the election campaign itself, and it's sure. going to allow the coalition to say this is, you know, Bill Shorten 2.0, sure. this is uh, this is ideology, this is, wow. uh, you know. Um, I think if he chooses, and, and I, I hope that he does, to run his own race, the policy debate is different to the political debate, is different to what he is saying is, let's not explain the world as we wish it to be, let's explain the world as we wish it to be, but also how the world is. And mm. so either extreme is not going to satisfy the community or the country in the long term. And if he runs his own race and makes this case, I mean, it, it always strikes me that you make a bold policy target and then the pylon begins. And, and if he can say, well, we will spend the next couple of years developing policy and we'll explain it along the way. Um, you know, certainly Labor had a bit of a challenge on that last time round, but perhaps on too many fronts. But, uh, you know, I, I think commentary can't have it both ways either. Mm. Um, it tries to have yes. it both ways all the time. And if he runs his own race and says, you know, yes, um, this is a big target. We don't have the detail yet, but we'll develop it. That is how good policy is developed as well. And, uh, and there's so much there that can inform what is good policy in this space. Morrison can get out of this quite easily. If he stepped back for a minute and just looked at the circumstances he's, he's ended up in, some of his own making and some not of his making. I mean, the Zali Stegall climate bill, uh, calling for a conscience vote in the parliament, uh, gives him an out. It's a get-out-of-jail-free card for Morrison because he can step back and say, OK, there has been a change in community mood. There's a lot happening. I think we should have a debate in the parliament where everyone can state freely whatever views they hold about this and vote according to their conscience on the issue and um, step out of it. And let the Nats run on, you know, whatever they want to say and those who are strong supporters of, uh, you know, accelerated action say what they want to say. In the end, you'll get a vote. And on the back of that, he could say, well, the mood of the you know, parliament reflecting the mood of the people is that we should be doing more and I'm going to go now move in that direction. And it's very hard for the others to say, well, they've had their say. It didn't carry the day. And so I think a conscience vote is very important. And in the case of each individual member, they have to go back to their constituents and explain their position. And right now, they're finding it very difficult to stick with the situation that they find in Canberra. And uh, of course, they can also explain that to their children and their grandchildren as to why they took a particular stance at a particular time. So I think it could be a real circuit breaker on this issue, get away from the climate wars, give Morrison, a, a, you know, as I say, a get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, which uh, he can then use to reset his position, because right now, well, what does he do if he's voted against it? Though, because I mean, look at his, look at his record have on to the make same sex mind. marriage uh, uh, survey. He didn't even vote for it. You know, he, he no, he might vote. have to make his make up his mind. If he abstained, it wouldn't look good. No. If he voted against it, it wouldn't look good. So I think you might find that uh, a lot of them, when they're faced with the reality of having to declare a position openly that they would actually take what is a sensible medium-term view. And it's not about targets. It's not about transition strategies. It's about whether or not there is an issue here that needs to be addressed. And once you get to that level, then you've got, every, every, you've got a platform on which to address it. 
It's a really interesting point, uh, Maria. You've looked at liberal parties, and you're very conversant with the uh, the, the way the liberal party is structured, and it's, uh, it's you know the, these ideological debates that they've had over time. You've got prominent backbenchers: Jason Flinsky, Trent Zimmerman, Dave Sharma. These are all kind of um, metropolitan small L liberals, I suppose you'd say, who are you know obviously making comments in favour of this 2050 target as a as a proposition. They're they're, they're more critical of um, Zali Stegall's bill. Um, but but nonetheless, you know, as John Houston says, this is evidence that they are feeling the pressure in these metropolitan electorates. But do you think this is the sort of issue that a, 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 a conscience vote could resolve or would that just result in the recalcitrance, you know, sort of breaking the party apart or? I think um, a lot of people within the Liberal Party would resist the idea of a conscience vote because it's not necessarily a strict matter of conscience, like it's not a life and death issue. And I think that, you know, this this actually, this debate about a conscience vote has come up many times, specifically on this issue. It happened with the ETS legislation, if you recall, and it was resisted at that time because it was seen as a policy position that the party should have a, a policy and that I can sort of see why Scott Morrison could see this as very uh, a risky thing to kind of do to allow his MPs to have a vote on a question of policy. Um, in this instance, then there'll be pressure for the next one um, or the next one. And it, it simply reduces his capacity to to control the situation. But I think what what you know what John, what you've sort of said has kind of highlighted the the very problem, right? Like and and what you were saying before, Megan, um, the government is clearly trying to find a way to move on climate action, some form of climate action. You know, now we're it's like we're we're going through all the kind of um slogan words that can be attached to climate change. We can't talk about energy now as a way of dealing with climate change, putting in infrastructure to manage incentive systems in the economy. Now it's going to be this sort of technology kind of thing with which, you know, doesn't seem very clear how this is going to um, work. But it kind of boils down to the fact that Scott Morrison knows that he needs to be sort of seen to be moving on this subject. He is wedged between... Um, the National Party and actors within his own party that have basically threatened to bring down his government, uh, his own lukewarmness on the science of climate and its requirements as a policy position. And his waving around a big lump of coal in Parliament in, didn't exactly help. Exactly. And, and as it goes on, I think the question that might become very dangerous for the government is can this government, can this party be trusted to manage this transition in the economy that is coming whether we like it or not? Yeah. Well, let, let's turn to Anthony Albanese just for a moment. Um, he uh, obviously is, is has a challenge ahead. We've sort of touched on this a bit in terms of the risk, but uh, you'll notice from his insider's interview with David Spears that he was leaving open the idea that we could even still be selling coal in 2050. Um, Metallurgical coal probably. Well, there's currently no substitute for metallurgical coal. I think that's exactly what he was saying. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't yeah. saying thermal, thermal coal. coal. I don't think. I mean, he no. was very careful not to be clear on that point. <laughs> <laughs> that's politics. It's <laughs> about being careful uh, not to be clear on things. I think he was talking metallurgical yeah. coal. And look, the world is moving dramatically against thermal coal. So mm. by, you know, at the time you get there, <laughs> 2050, 
it's quite reasonable to imagine there won't be too many experts of exports of thermocol. But this is also the politics of it. I mean, he mm. has to manage a transition, and that means taking people yeah. along with that him. That was as a nod to Joel Fitzgibbon, yeah. Yeah, it's, and, 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 and to the whole, the whole, whole and, so on. Yeah. and to a whole sector mm. of of uh, the Australian economy. Admittedly, it's not the majority, but a significant sector of the Australian economy whose jobs and prosperity is built around the export of thermal coal. Um, we so, need a line in the sand if you're going to ch- move ahead in this debate. And uh, I thought the, a free vote, don't call it a conscience vote, would have been one mechanism for doing it. The other would be just straight leadership. I mean, Morrison could stand up and say, you know, I didn't really I mean, believe in that lump of coal. The trouble is he does believe in that lump of coal and he's got a whole lot of people on his staff that are ex-coal industry executives and a couple of ministers that are family links to coal and heavy funding coming out of the fossil fuel lobby into the party. And, okay, there's a lot of lot of factors that he can use internally to say this is why I'm not moving, but uh, he's losing the debate in terms of the electorate. It's how, um, how hard is it for politicians to make that change? I mean, if you go you know, back easy, to... I lost an election doing it. No, no <laughs> yeah. problem. You get people to change your mind for you, like John Howard did in 2007. But you did. Yeah, well, Howard got desperate in 2007, and then suddenly we'll support an emissions trading scheme, and I'll do it by 2010. And he reintroduced the sort of safety net into work choices that year as well because the That's right. polls were telling him you're in deep now, trouble here. He, he recognised that uh, the only thing he didn't go – he had three issues. was work choices, which he was behind on. He fixed that. He was behind on not ratifying Kyoto and moving on mm. climate. He fixed that. He didn't do anything about the sorry statement. But, um, you know, he was too late into that game and, yeah. of course, lost his seat as well as government. But yeah, but he'd been there a long time. The other one, had. The other one that uh, springs to mind is uh, Tony Abbott, uh, right through his, you know, benighted sort of two-year mm. prime ministership. Uh, he, um, he would have saved himself a lot of bother if he'd had got, allowed a conscience vote on same-sex marriage rather mm. than having that as a kind of a, you know, a, a can-kicking exercise yeah, for so long because it became... Seat, yeah. yeah, it did. And it, it did cost him his seat. Uh, it helped, you know, very substantially, but it also probably cost him the leadership because it became such a kind of a symbol of his complete ideological intransigence on this question, even though it was clear from all the polling that the Australian people had moved on. Is there any sort of parallel here? I mean, it's not the same kind of moral yeah, There's a stubbornness question. in those leaders, the three you mentioned. They're all very similar characters. They all don't want to admit that they've done anything wrong, made a mistake, could have looked at it differently. And so they, they sort of double down each time. And it's only in, in sheer desperation, as in Howard's case, that he changed his position right at the end. But he was flat out. I mean, I heard from cabinet meetings right through that period, when, you know, members of the cabinet saying, for Christ's sake, say you're sorry. Just, mm. just put it, bury it. Say that you will ratify Kyoto Cross. It's only a signature. Let's move on. You know, you made it an issue. You've given this guy two platforms, two p- platform issues to run against you. And he's still, no, no, I've made my statement. I'm not changing my mind. Well, that's, that's really a very dangerous position for a leader to be in. Um, you know, a shrewd leader would see the, well, look at the, the reaction to the bushfires and the drought, not only here, but globally. And the way that's fed on our image our poor image now internationally as much as it has on his leadership domestically. You would think that in that world you'd say, well, maybe we have to we have to find a circuit breaker here. We have to get out of this somehow. Yet he's doubling down. And as the National Party said more and more, um, you know, he's sort of giving 
giving a nod, more or less, not necessarily endorsing anything, but the argument for a coal-fired power station, for example, in North Queensland is nonsense. There is no net demand for power. You know, the banks won't finance it. The insurers won't insure it. And renewable energy is so much cheaper, but they're letting that argument run. And the evidence is not quoted at all. And you get yourself in that position. You're getting, you know, and you have to double down again. And what's he going to fund it? Mm. Uh, you know, that well, would we're be funding, a disaster for we're, we're funding the, uh, what is it, the feasibility, the feasibility. study already. Yeah, well, if, and, you know, because the private sector couldn't even afford a four you know, million dollar feasibility study. He funds that as if a, as a bit of a sop. But that's just, you know, that's short-term. Well, what, what Labor calls it hush money to the yeah, well, protocol. short-term gain, but is it going to be to his long-term benefit? I seriously doubt it. It's buying time, I think. That's what um, he's doing. And, and sometimes. I think what strikes me is the the, the pragmatism and the symbolism, like the, the, the examples you mentioned, the symbolism uh, and then following that, the actual reality of saying sorry. It, it, Labor leaders could be accused of being too far down the symbolism path, but mm. Liberal leaders uh, are all about the pragmatism. Um, no, I'm not going to. I think the, the symbolic gesture of of saying that you understand that these things are impacting people's lives is not difficult. I, I always struggle mm. as to why they can't make that symbolic, uh, symbolic gesture. But y- you asked before, Mark, around, um, you know, within political parties. I mean, here in the ACT, we have had a Labor-Greens government for some time with one Greens member sitting in Cabinet. Uh, for one term, the only Greens member in the Parliament sat in Cabinet. Um, it's it's worked uh, well here, but it's what the electorate threw up, so we, we, we worked with that. But along the way, it seems to be stuck in inaction, and what I found was that you need a path to actually progress some issues. So when I saw that the federal government was going to negotiate an agreement with New South Wales. I think to your point, Maria, oh gosh, here we go. There's going to be multiple, mm. you know, that's where we got stuck oh, on education policy. And um, But but it's better than nothing. If you actually have some movement, I think I found if, you, if you're always stuck in debating the perfect policy and you have nothing that's progressing action, sometimes your opponents, you can actually say, oh, look over here. <laughs> in a way, it's a, both a distraction, but it might actually provide some evidence and a shift in position when you actually get on and do some things. So we saw that on on in, um, on negotiating separate agreements with New South Wales for a starter. And now the technology target, is it a, is it a, is it a whitewash or is it actually a distraction or is it potentially something that, that actually could develop into something where the opponents get sucked off into another area and uh, and don't spend all their time obsessing over this coal question. But he'll be under the same pressure to get mm. detail which technologies, over what time horizon, how much yeah. will it cost, yeah. the same as Labor's got to yeah. put and some detail anyway. on anyway. you know, net zero emissions. You don't get away from the essence of the debate by the distraction. Distraction works perhaps initially, mm. but then eventually the debate shifts back to the detail and if you haven't got any detail, it's going to be you know, it's going to be choice between the lesser of two evils. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's I think the points you've made are, are, are actually sort of spot on, and and it's quite clear that he's trying to do that. I mean, one of the reasons why the technology thing is so vague is because well, that could mean coal, or that could mean hydro, or that could mean green energy. It's it's what you kind of want to see that mean. But I think like something that we all need to kind of think about as citizens and our friends over in the press gallery kind of need to think about is that we actually need to be more comfortable with having a messier debate, right? I mean, like if you look at any period of significant policy change in this country and in other countries, 
people usually don't know the answer about what policy change is exactly going to look like. They just know that there might be a problem and that we need to have a conversation around it. And I think one of the things that was really frustrating around the Turnbull prime ministership, for example, was you know, they debated whether or not to change the GST and he refused to be uh, bound to a position on that. They investigated it and ultimately decided that it wasn't a good idea, that they couldn't pay the compensation in the end. And he was just shellacked uphill and down dale for doing that. But that's exactly what he should have been doing. And so it is incumbent on us as citizens and our friends in the press gallery to, to yes, hold the government account in particular because they've been the government for six years. They are responsible for the state of affairs now. There's no, there's no debate about that. But, you know, there needs to be the space to have have ideas that go down blind alleys to be able to discuss things and refine things because otherwise we're going to get locked into crap policy too. Mm, Very well said. (laughs) Let's take a quick break. Uh, We could talk about this uh, so long that I've been actually struggling to find a time to have this break, but we'll take a quick break and come back and continue the discussion. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Thanks for all your kind comments and feedback we've had about our new podcast, Ask Policy Forum, which came out last week. We're really glad you enjoyed it. We'll be recording another episode soon and we'll be asking you for your questions and comments for the panel to tackle. And remember, the only place we'll be sharing Ask Policy Forum in future is in our Facebook group. So if you're not already a member of the group, jump on now and join the pod gang. You can find us on there as Policy Forum Pod. Now, John, you uh, wanted to pick up on some comments that Maria was making before the break. Yeah, Maria's point about, um, you know, people understanding that there are options, I guess. Um, The responsible approach to this by both the opposition and the government would be to lay out a series of scenarios or options between now and 2050. And there you can do your pluses and minuses. You can cost them if you like. But you start to get the electorate to think about the transition that has to be made and that there are ways to do it that they might find attractive and ways they might not find that attractive. You initiate that sort of public debate about the transition. Get away from whether or not we should be doing anything and start Mm -hmm. focusing on the transition and getting the options on the table. In the end, then both sides can pick an option and run to an election on that option. But have a more informed debate first because otherwise it just degenerates to what we've got, which is just this daily, incessant, you know, illogical point scoring, which is against the national interest. That's right. And there's this sort of underlying pretense that you can – one of the options is to do nothing, which it isn't. It's Mm. not an option. Well, the cost of doing nothing is much greater than anything they're talking about. Mm. So – and that gets lost, unfortunately, in the argument. Has that ever – 
worked in previous policy debates, you know, actually drawing out this cost of inaction. I, I was mm. trying to think what what a uh, what a similar example might have been, but it, but it does strike me that the we've just been through a summer of the cost of inaction. Well, they're living well, it now. Yeah, I, 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 would, I would say it, I would say it was a kind of front of mind issue in 1939. Yeah, um, yes, you know, the, 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 yeah. it's a different thing. Yeah, We're talking is. about you know going to war. Mm. Then it's mm. a much more sort of yeah. urgent and existential kind of issue. But mm. nonetheless, there was this clear threat to the world, to our way of life, to our allies and mm. everything else. And yeah. we saw that in a very a very clear way. Simply pretending the status quo would maintain was just not an option, right? Mm. Well, yeah. this is coming at us over mm. over decades and we've been aware of it. But nonetheless, the evidence is gathering. And as mm. you say, Megan, we, we've just had a summer where we've started to see, as uh, Professor Garno had, had, had predicted, predicted. In, for 2020, that we would start to see <laughs> And feel these, you know, very real effects of a change in climate. And sure enough, that right on on cue, we did. I mean, the GFC is a good example. It was never very well articulated, but it was part of the rationale. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Yeah, that is. A, yeah, I think um, John, that's a a great point about the options in front of us. But it strikes me too that there's a, there's a way of saying what we've already done and how we've already sort of changed our lives. And I I often wonder if the frame to me in 30 years sounds a little bit different than by 2050 um, when you give it that it's 30 years away and what what how have our lives changed in the last 30 years yeah. um, as you say about the digital economy we couldn't have written this policy uh you know, before the internet, uh, before having smartphones, before a whole range of other technological and societal developments. we If we think about the last 30 years and project the next 30 years, a lot of things will change. Uh, but if we get a sense of perspective that change is part of life and uh, much of, his, of it is for good uh, and what we've already done on climate change, you know, recycling mm-hmm. bins are now just part of, I mean, that's a very small um, part of it, but there are things we've already done and people continue to do. Uh, plant-based foods are new. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Who, who would have predicted a digital sausage? No. <laughs> and yet here we are. <laughs> it is interesting, though, because there's all these price signals that are mm. operating anyway. Mm. I mean, we, you yeah. know, we had that sort of stupid debate about the carbon tax and, and, and then you know, the, this, this government got into office and, and mm. got rid of the single most effective mechanism for actually driving down carbon output. Uh, but we see, uh, I was making this point on Insiders, mm-hmm. but we see rooftop solar everywhere mm-hmm. because people are making judgments yeah. about their electricity costs. There are obviously value aspects mm-hmm. to that as well in terms of the policy. But And we see it in, um, in recycling decisions. We see it in a whole lot of ways that people are acting. And we even see it, funnily enough, this is the bit that sticks in my craw a bit, we even see it, funnily enough, in terms of government communications. The government claims credit for um, you know the the renewable sector going so well, mm. well it's, it's had some part in that in terms of the renewable energy target and subsidies and so forth. Mm. But there's been a lot that's been done by the private sector and by individuals in this space, mm. uh, and it's uh, it seems like the government's actually hoping. And I like we we haven't had it sort of uh, quantified exactly or clarified, but this technology target seems to be a recipe for more of that. Really, we're going to sort of privatise public policy responsibilities by getting technology to do the things that we're not prepared to, you know, have any political cost. But isn't, cost isn't that kind of the point? Like the reason why renewable energy investment, we've seen that, that was because the government set a, a target, right, and set a policy framework to guide that yeah, set of, good point. of mm. investment. Um, 
Um, John, you might know the answer to this. I mean, um, you know, what does business need? Like, you know, what kind of framework does it kind of need in order for it to make good decisions about its investment future? And what's the government's role in that? Well, they have it. You know, they want certainty for as long as possible. If you're going to build a you know, solar plant, for example, with a 15 or 20 year life, you want a level of certainty that that's sensible to borrow that money and raise that equity to actually build that. Uh, and um, circumstances have changed. And I think if you look at solar, the government's got caught short and the authorities got caught short. The pace of the rollout of rooftop solar has been phenomenal. So that in the middle of the day, you know, wholesale prices quoted on, on solar power is zero or negative. Mm. And yet uh, in an evening peak or morning peak, they're really quite high. Yeah. And they didn't have the storage system. They didn't have the network or the grid to, to keep up with that. And, um, you know, I think the, the way to do this right now is to take it, take the structure, the, the, the laying out of these scenarios and so on, away from government, to have that done by an independent climate trans, transition sort of authority that lays out these options, does all the homework, draws on the best international experience and practice and evidence and so on, lays them out. And then the government and the opposition are then able to comment on their position so relative to those this scenarios. Is an, this is analogous to sort of uh, taking the interest rate uh, the cash rate out of the yeah, government's look, hands. I had in this a way. debate in the seventies in the Fraser government, going into cabinet saying, "Why are you guys setting interest rates and exchange rates? You haven't got a clue. <laughs> There's no market. You know, you yeah. don't know what the demand and supply is for for our currency, for example. Mm. Every now and again, we had a currency crisis and the money flooded out of the country. We knew the price was wrong, and the the only solution was to allow the market forces as pure as possible to be the basis of that. Not to say that and governments to, still can't have, intervene if they want to. That's right. But the basis of the of the of the process is a market price, and in those circumstances, I would have thought a conservative government would latch onto that thinking. I would have thought so too, <laughs> and, and have solved the problem. They seem very stubborn to to well, to, you know, to look at the market uh, as a mechanism. Yeah. If you believe in small government, if you believe in low levels of regulation, you believe in using market forces wherever you mm. can, which I think conservatives claim to, and they're certainly seeing that, as you mentioned before, Mark, in the UK. Uh, you you are able to put a price on these things. It's not the total answer. You may mandate things. You may ban things. You may do all sorts of other things. But that's a basic price within which the system's going to operate. And Treasury's done that work more recently showing that if we'd had a price on carbon over the years, it would be much lower than the implicit price is today. So power prices would be much lower. Uh, we've already cost ourselves in terms of power prices and jobs, but we don't have that debate anymore. We're just saying that we're asserting that in the future it'll cost more jobs. It doesn't have to. I mean, I think what's alarming about this whole debate and this and this failure of elected representatives to act is that it does make this kind of situation where you, you give it to a third party to to make the decisions for politicians more attractive. And, you know, representatives need to kind of ask themselves whether or not they really want that situation. I mean, we could just have technocrats. Like, well, what's the that's, point of the, them? that's the risk mm. in, in that, well, I agree mm. uh, that it seems like that would be a solution to this problem. Those bodies are in a way unaccountable in our system of representative democracy. And, and it's a chicken and egg about trust in uh, democratically elected representatives. But the more things that are effectively outsourced from those that do, people that do go out and have to speak in their own community uh, every day to people, uh, the harder the harder the job actually of representative democracy becomes. I think it whittles away both its authority. Well, yes, I, I but, accept that point. But I don't, I don't disagree that 
representatives that have been elected are, are quite significantly responsible for this decline, but not solely responsible. And and look, the, let's be mm. honest, the system has failed. The political system has failed to deal with this this problem. If we keep it this you know, strictly to this problem of climate change policy, the, mm. the political community as a whole has not been able to Well, how do you account for last together? year's election win, though, if, if the view is that- Even like Shorten. Yeah. I, 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 you know, Anthony Albanese <laughs> said on, on that cut through that, didn't it? <laughs> it cuts through. Al- Albanese said on Insiders that um, you know, if if you know, he he made the point that sort of uh, climate change had been a significant factor in that election. But I've seen research that suggests that wasn't, wasn't. the issue that yeah. killed Labor's vote, that sort of cruel Labor's chances at that election. It was a whole lot of things, including uh, the leaders standing yeah. and the uh, you know the clutch of policies yeah. and uh, you know the way the, uh, the the still then new prime minister you know kind of mm. packaged up all of those insecurities mm. and and sort of made it amount to something for yeah. voters and they they yeah, stuck yeah, with the, the, the Palmer advertising in Queensland. The Palmer yeah, advertising. Yeah, yeah. Look, if you if you extract the Palmer advertising. Mm the sports rorts grants, mm. you know, mm. and all these places, you extract those big parcels of money out of it, you may have had a different result in the election anyway. And I see that yesterday um, Albanese did make, um, you know, a new statement on capping political donations and talked very, you know, firmly about real-time disclosure. And so there's definitely work to do mm. in that space to prevent that happening at the next federal election. But I personally come, I guess, from the standpoint where representative democracy is important. It is important that our community, everyone gets a vote uh, and it's mm. an equal vote. And that is that ought to be defended, uh, not, a, not um, you know, at a significant cost that ought to be defended. So I guess more fundamentally, the um, continual uh, c- contracting out or, or, or outsourcing of um to, to bodies that are accountable in a different way is something I know a lot of people are thinking about as and questioning whether this is the best solution to the kind of failing trust in democracy. And I think that's still a little way to go in that debate. Yeah, it's a very good point. We're getting quite short of time now, but uh, I just want to turn quickly to a couple of other issues if you want to discuss them, things like uh, obviously the challenge to the budget from um, – or to the surplus anyway from, um, uh, you know, this multiple set of circumstances, the bushfires obviously, the drought, floods, coronavirus. I mean – what do you think, John? Is the is the uh, on face value, toast? On face value, you'd say all those factors should significantly reduce growth and the revenue base of the budget, and uh, therefore the surplus may be lost. I'm very cynical. I imagine that they're still doing everything they possibly can to get a surplus this year. The iron ore price is still holding up, isn't and, it? And and uh, by uh, delaying a lot of the recovery payments to July the first or whatever, right? Uh, shifting around on NDIS and other big items that they can move around, it's not hard to con- you know, to to manufacture in innovative accounting, but manufacture a number that's still a plus, it's still a surplus, but it's not a realistic assessment of where we sit as an economy. And what we should be doing, taking a medium to longer term view of the economy as it sits, ignoring all those other factors. You know, we've still got a lot of very large expenditure commitments that have been made carrying through the 2020s in areas like infrastructure and defence, most obviously, but also NDIS and education health. There's a lot of that been pushed out. Um, so I think that uh, realistically, they'll be looking at the possibility of a tax increase in the 2020s. <laughs> It's not on the agenda today, that's for sure. And in fact, uh, they'll claim credit for a surplus. It won't be a string of surpluses and it won't be reducing debt as they promised. 
But um, I think they really do want to get that surplus at all costs and innovative accounting may certainly help them. <laughs> what do you think, Megan? Is the coronavirus, uh, from from your perspective, mm. you're a former health mm. minister, I mean, obviously there'd be great concerns in, uh, in the sector about uh, where this ends. There are obviously mm. the economic impacts we've just been touching on as well. Uh, any thoughts on, on the coronavirus? Uh, well, I think uh, certainly in terms of the higher education sector, significant impact, and I think it 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 has uh, shown uh, the reliance on on uh, international students in particular, um, which uh, that bring a lot to to Australia, both in personal, professional, and um, uh, and sort of diplomatic terms. Um, I, and I agree with John. I think they will try uh, for the surplus, but but then um, foreshadow that it will come down um, over the following year. Um, I don't know where they would tax next. I don't know what that looks like. I think, and I agree on the the ability to have some creative accounting in a budget um, and to push things out. And, you know, the states and territories will see that. They see it every year um, in their own budgets, that they'll get money that was promised in one year and delivered in the other and vice versa. Um, then it has a ricochet effect around the country, particularly in service delivery in really important areas like health and education and, and transport. So I think the biggest losers initially will be the state and territory governments out of this. Um, and then they will put that onto the state and territory governments, which which we see time and time again. Um, you know, longer waiting lists in hospitals then uh, have health ministers at the state level having to defend those when there's been a significant, um, you know, slowdown in the growth of payments. So um it will be interesting to see. I think certainly in terms of the year in January, um, the way that the parliamentary year started with the nationals was, you know, diabolical. Mm. Um, I'm not sure what comes in the next couple of weeks, but you know, more grants can more grants um, that have been misused by the looks of it as well. Yeah, we've had three tranches mm. of that uh, really come out. Uh, you know, yeah. these grants programs that are just being used in such a cynical political way. Well, that's it for another Democracy Sausage. Thanks for staying with us, and my thanks especially to ANU Senior Fellow Megan Fitzharris, Dr. Maria Taflaga, and, of course, Professors, Professor John Hewson. Uh, great to have you along. Hope you can join us again next episode, and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and even tweet about the sausage if you're so inclined, and keep your eye out because we have some really interesting things cooking up in current weeks. And before I go, um, uh, Maria, I might just get you to... Um, by way of uh, you know encouraging people to to subscribe and to interact with us, so uh, we've got a uh, fairly favourable review that I'll shamelessly get you to read out. Yes, yes. So uh, this review is from uh, Apple Podcasts, right? Um, and it really helps when you leave a review on Apple Podcasts because that's how other people can find us. That's how we're especially favourable ones. That's right, favourable ones do help. And so we'd <laughs> like to thank Ravesia, who says that Democracy Sausage keeps me informed and sane, which is a bonus. There is no grandstanding to distract the lister and to turn them off. It presents a fine spectrum of views and analysis, and it's up to the minute. All of the above makes it my fave podcast. Thank you so much, Ravesia. Yes, what she said. I'm Mark Kenny. Goodbye for now. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. 
Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. <laughs> 